Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School, Chicago. I hope and pray that the following message blesses you with peace and hope in Christ, who died and rose for you, for free. It is yours. If you'd like to support God's mission of giving life, hope, peace, joy, and love in the city of Chicago, go to stjames-lutheran.org. Peace. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's something about the prodigal son that just calls out to us from the New Testament. It comes up every year in our Lenten journey around this time of the year, and I think it's a haunting story, but one that we relate to primarily because we see so much of ourselves in it whether in our younger years or whether today, right? Because in the prodigal son, we recognize our own propensity to think that we're the master of our own destiny, the the captain of our ship, so to speak. This person asks for every good good gift to be given to him, and he squanders it upon himself, brought low by his actions and decisions. I'm sure we can all relate to that at some point in our lives. And yet, through this experience, we get one of the most beautiful depictions of God's grace in the entire New Testament. And in fact, we would say that we see not just somebody restored to their former position, but in fact, elevated, right? Brought up out of simply um, the, the, the sin of his, his own actions, his own decisions, and into a place of celebration, a place of being the, the focus of a joyous feast. So again, we're going to see that in the way in which God raises up this son to a place where he's in fact in a better position than he was before. The other person I think that we need to also kind of focus on, though, is this second son, this older son, Because oftentimes we also see a lot of ourselves in him, too. In this older son, we see someone who follows all the rules, right? Dots all the I's, crosses all the T's, expects to be rewarded for it, and kind of isn't, right? And I think when we consider our own situations, sometimes our own family situations, our relationship with friends, we can see a lot of ourselves there as well, in the sense that, you know, we expect to be rewarded for the decisions we make. But in order to get to the core of this parable, we'll look first at this prodigal son, this younger son. And what I love is that from the very beginning of the story, we see exactly who this guy is, right? Imagine for a second yourselves and uh, and think about a time, or maybe hopefully this isn't a time, but think about the, the audacity that it would take for you to go to a loved one, a parent, a grandparent, and say, that you want your inheritance now, right? It might not be the equivalent of putting a pillow over grandma's face, but you know, it, it's right there, it's almost there, right? It would make things a lot easier in terms of uh, what we want to do if we could simply have access to the resources we desire at this moment, right? Maybe it's that new Tesla given the price of, of gas at the moment, right? But even in the way the request is phrased, we can see where this person's attention is placed, right? The, the syntax is a little bit clunky, but he says in the original language, give me those things that are mine that are coming to me. So three times in the same sentence, he's totally me-focused. So we would say this is somebody who is entirely curved in on himself, on his own desires. So he's requested that he receive every good and gracious gift that God has to offer, not on God's timeline, but instead on his 
own. He wants what is coming to him now. Somebody pointed out, uh, a theologian I read recently, that uh, she said that, that most of our problems when it comes to sin come from that desire to have the things that are coming to us now on our schedule rather than on God's. And it's interesting, too, what he decides to do with the gifts that he's given, right? He goes off into a foreign land and spends them in reckless living. So for a first century audience, this is completely indescribable what this person does, right? Think about leaving your people in order to go off into a foreign land and squander everything that's been given on this reckless living, this, this love of self, really, at the end of the day. So when we try to, again, like bridge the gap to our context, think about the gifts that God gives us today. Things like forgiveness, life, salvation, all those things that we know we receive as Christians. And think about how foolish it would be if we spent them on ourselves, right? Instead, these gifts are meant to travel from us to those around us. We're meant to spend it on other people, right? I've said this before that the love of God, real Christian love, is always moving. It's moving from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to the church, and from the church to the world, right? So Christian love is all about the gift of self toward others. This is what Christ Jesus embodies throughout his life and his ministry. He gives us divine love faith, forgiveness, mercy, and rather than spending it on ourselves, we should seek to spend it on other people. As Christ gives, so too do we give in this similar way, right? So in being Christ-like, we see that that's where the heart of the gospel is able to shine through us towards the world around us. And here's the point. The Christian love of the gospel is kind of paradoxical, right? In the sense that we always want to have and hold those things that we're given, right? But it doesn't ever work that way, right? Instead, we give it away, and in fact, that's how we attain to it, right? Christians have always held to this idea of mercy, of charity, of kindness, that it's awarded to us in equal measure as we give it out and spend it on the people around us. We can't be like the younger son who's content to hoard these things for himself, right? And then what I I think is so striking about the parable is that things get worse for this younger son, right? The economy sort of metaphorically flips, and suddenly there's a famine in the land. He's stuck not only in a spiritual wasteland, but we might say a physical wilderness as well. And so as we've been thinking about our journey as Christians through the wilderness, that's been our theme throughout this Lenten season, we see someone who ends up in this position. Beyond that, he ends up brought low to the point where he wants to eat from the the troughs where the pigs are fed from. So not only is he in a physical wilderness, but also when we think about a first century audience, he's in that place of total spiritual uncleanness as well, right? In with the pigs. He is totally cast off spiritually from where God's presence would normally expect to be. And in the midst of this, we have to ask ourselves, what is the son tempted to believe about his dad? What's he tempted to believe about his father? And listen closely. I think we'll notice some interesting things. He asks himself this question. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise, go to my father and say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants instead. So he seeks to return 
to the household of faith, so to speak, but he assumes that his sin has irrevocably damaged something. He thinks he can be welcomed back, but no longer as a son. He thinks he can only be welcomed back as a servant, right? So he thinks that maybe his repentance can get him back in good a little bit, but not all the way. And I find that this is, this is something we all tend to struggle with, right? We know God's grace in the abstract, but when it comes to our own shortcomings, oftentimes we have difficulty believing that it's actually for us. If we think that our relationship is made right with God, then sometimes I think we're fearful that our relationship might be broken with those around us. We too think that we might just be servants in the household and no longer sons, right? It was funny, uh, my brother passed along this line from uh, a Daredevil comic, right, where Matt Murdock, a Catholic, says, you know, I can believe grace in the abstract, but I'm a good enough Catholic to believe it'll never be for me, right? And whether or not, you know, th- this is true for this character, I think we all can relate to those moments of questioning whether or not God's grace is actually for us. So our challenge, then, is to read through the rest of the story and believe that it's for you. That's where the grace of God, the power of the gospel is found, when it's given for you specifically, not in the abstract, but to your context, answering your problems that you're facing. And notice the actions of the Father here, the the completely, um, just without any uh, mind for social graces, the way that he greets his son. Here's what the text says. It says, the son arose and came to his father, But while he was still far off, while he was still far off, the father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him, threw off the social graces, kissed him. And the son said to the father, here's what I love. He gives this this repentant kind of cry, right? I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father almost entirely ignores that. He speaks to his servants instead and says, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, celebrate, let us have a feast. My son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And it was just brought to my attention as we think about this for a moment, the way that this is evocative of just a wedding feast, right? Of the way that we we spare no expense when we have a wedding feast. We celebrate, right? The ring is placed on his son's finger, showing that the relationship is not even a little bit fractured. Instead, it is fully mended, right? Christ Jesus the bridegroom has run to meet his bride when we think about our relationship today between the church and Christ Jesus, how it's fully brought together while we were far off. And again, when we think about this as we lead up to Holy Week, because Holy Week is coming up, think about this theme, how it plays out on the cross. If you want to talk about an example of love that runs to meet us when we're far off, think about the fact that Christ Jesus forgives those putting him to death on a cross. That is about as concrete an example of love that meets us when we're far off. Love that relentlessly pursues us at any cost necessary. This is what God does. Loves a church that's far off, having squandered our inheritance, and yet gladly, joyfully brings us back into the fold. So the sweetness of this parable is the fact that we're not held at arm's length. We're not just a servant of the household. Instead, we become the reason for celebration. That's the sweetness of what we receive in God's grace, in God's favor. And if the story ended there, that would be good enough, right? That's a wonderful ending to a story. All is well. The wedding feast begins. It's a celebration. There's music. There's food. It's everything we want. But what's odd is that the story keeps going, right? 
Jesus goes on to tell us about this older son who's offended at what's taking place. He hears the music and is totally baffled by it. And so then he goes to his father, and notice the way that his father, it says that he entreats with his son, almost pleads with this older son who feels that he's been wronged because the lost have been found. And listen to what the father says here. He says, My, uh, your brother has come, your, rather this is the servant toward, towards, uh, towards the son, that your father has received him back safe and sound. Here's how the older res- uh, son responds. These many years, I've followed your rules, right? I've served you, never disobeyed a command, but you haven't given me any of this. And in fact, he uses this harsh language. He says, your younger son has devoured your property with prostitutes. So what's going on here? You celebrate this guy who we have no reason to celebrate. And of course, this is the the strong message, is that the joy of the Christian is found when anyone who's lost is found, and specifically through faith, when when the dead are made alive in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. So think, reflect on our own lives, our own experiences with the people who are like the younger son in our lives, right? When we think that we've followed all the rules and yet we've never been rewarded, right? We haven't gone through a rebellious phase and yet we see the celebration that happens when repentance and faith happen in the lives of those around us, right? And then think about how all the more challenging it is when we see the same sinners deal with the same problems again and again, right? When somebody around us metaphorically like packs their bags and heads to Vegas again or wraps the family vehicle around a a light pole, right? We feel frustrated and think about that and then think about the fact that this message is for us who often play the role of the older son, right? The good news here is that God's mercy in fact, doesn't have any limits. We often want to place limits on God's forgiveness, limits on his mercy. But that's really, we'd say, counterintuitive to the entirety of the Christian faith, right? Instead, the Christian faith reminds us that, yes, grace is unfair, but that's good news for us because we're also recipients of God's grace. We play both roles of both of these sons, right? So ultimately, then, the forgiveness we seek, the salvation we seek, is not about us. It's not about us. It's not about our own rule following, even our own faith, our own adherence to these things. Instead, it's all about Christ Jesus. He's the object of of our faith. He's the one who grants us his inheritance, who gifts us grace freely, truly, richly, right? So our, our good works aren't what get us anywhere. Instead, it's this faith in the object of faith, Christ Jesus, who forms everything about who we are as Christians. So this story then should not end on a sour note for us. Instead, it should end on this joyful reminder that while we are yet far off, Christ Jesus has run to meet us. He has placed a ring upon our finger. He has brought the bridegroom and the church. Christ Jesus has done this. He's brought us back together, reconciled us together. And not only that, but he's prepared the fattened calf for us, right? So much about the church is described as a Eucharistic feast, as a wedding feast, wherein we're there to celebrate. And that's exactly what we have here. Every time we gather together as a community of faith, we hear the music, literally, right? As we've sung this morning, we receive a meal, communion, right? The Eucharist. And there we're able to, I would say, rejoice whether or not we're the rule-following older son or whether we're the younger son. Either way, we're called to see the love of a father 
who casts off all social graces, relentlessly pursues us, and showers us in his compassion and in his grace. One pastor put it this way, and I've always loved this particular phrasing of it. The parable of the prodigal son is an invitation to remind us that God is a far bigger savior than we are a sinner. So what's great is that Christ Jesus, our Lord, has enough grace for both of these sons, yes, but also he has enough grace for you and for me as well. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.